0: Catherine, also known as Kitty Genovese, died in the early hours of the morning of 13th of March 1964, in the rear hallway of her apartment block, from stab wounds inflicted by a man whom she'd never met, and for no other reason than he had been intent on killing a woman that night. This is a story that devastated a family, shocked a neighbourhood, and a city, and sent shockwaves around the world. Fifty years on, the effects are still felt strongly, because the events of that night really did change America. This is the story of Kitty Genovese, the bystander effect, and the creation of the 911 emergency call. Hello, Leanne Walker here. I'm so glad you're joining me for another episode of Wonder, the show that tells the stories of the people, places and events that shape our daily lives. I'm really delighted to be back with you for the second season of Wonder. I have lots of new tales of wonder and curiosity that I'm looking forward to sharing with you over the coming weeks. To find out more and get hold of the show notes for each of the episodes, head on over to www.injustoneday.com forward slash wonder. Now, let's get on with this week's show. Catherine Genovese, known as Kitty, was a quiet, well-liked woman who had relatively recently moved into her apartment in Kew Gardens, a leafy neighbourhood in Queens, New York. Kitty Genovese, born in July 1935, was the eldest child of an Italian-American family and grew up in Park Slope in Brooklyn. When her family relocated to Connecticut, she chose to stay in New York and in the spring of 1963 settled in Kew Gardens with her partner, Marianne Ann She took an apartment in a two-storey Tudor-style building on Austin Street, near the central cluster of shops. Across the street was one of the few high-rises in the neighbourhood, an elegant ten-storey apartment house called the Mowbray. Kitty worked as a manager at a sports bar in Hollis in Queens. On the evening of the 12th of March 1964, Kitty had been working. Her shift finished late, just after 2am on the morning of the 13th. She drove home and parked her car just a hundred yards from the door of her apartment building. While she was working that night, another Queen's resident, Winston Moseley, was at home with his wife and children. He had quite different ideas about how his evening was going to progress. Winston Mosley had no previous convictions but was a house burglar, and he was not known for violence. However, on that night, he left home at 2am with a hunting knife under his jacket and started cruising the streets with the sole purpose of killing a woman, the words that he would later relay to police. Whilst roaming the streets he noticed a car waiting at a set of traffic lights with a young woman in the driver's seat. This was Kitty on her way home from work. He followed her in his car. As Kitty pulled into the parking lot across from the building, so too did Mosley. As Kitty got out of her car she locked it and started walking towards her apartment. Mosley approached Kitty in the parking lot. She was frightened and ran up Austin Street thinking it would be busy even at 3.15am but Mosley caught up to her and stabbed her in the back twice. Kitty screamed loudly and a neighbour named Robert Moser leant out of his window and shouted for Mosley to let that girl alone. On hearing this "'Mosley ran back to his car and drove off. "'Other neighbours heard the muffled cries "'but assumed it just to be drunks on their way home "'and thought nothing further of it. "'Wounded but still able to move, "'Kitty staggered to her building "'with the intention of getting out to the back door, "'but this was locked. "'She fell to the floor in the rear hallway. "'After a few minutes of driving around, "'Mosley came back, he parked in a different location and put on a wide-brimmed hat, which he pulled down low to hide his face. Mosley searched the neighbourhood for Kitty, confident in the knowledge that no one was coming out of their apartment. Mr Moser, the man who'd called out, had moved back inside because he believed that the episode was over when he saw Mosley run away. Mosley found Kitty in the rear hallway of her apartment block, beside the shops. As soon as she saw him again, she screamed and so to quieten her, he stabbed her again. He then raped her, took money from her wallet, and left her lying there. He walked back to his car, drove away, got up the next day, and went to work as usual. Kitty's screams were heard, and the police were called, but by the time they arrived, sadly, it was too late. Kitty could not be saved. It is reported that an elderly neighbour came down and cradled Kitty in her arms until the emergency services arrived. There was nothing she could do to save her. The shock of the callous and opportunistic murder was felt strongly, not least by Kitty's family and her partner mary but also by her neighbours. was woken up by the police. She had been asleep and heard nothing of the events that morning. She was taken to the morgue to identify Kitty's body. She was later interviewed by the police for six hours, but released without charge. Initially, there was little said in the papers about the murder. Kitty's death was one of over 630 murders in New York that year, and so it really didn't merit much in the way of news space. The New York Times gave it just four paragraphs. Ten days after the murder, Winston Mosley was apprehended whilst he was out on another burglary. He was taken to the police station and interviewed, and he not only confessed to the burglaries, but also, without police knowing about his involvement, to Kitty's murder, and to previously sexually assaulting and killing two other women in Queens. The detail Mosley had about the events of March 13th matched the evidence collected at the crime scene. It was then that he admitted to the police... That he had left his apartment that night with a hunting knife, with the intention of quote, finding a woman and killing her. Mosley was charged with the murder of Kitty Genovese. Around this time, A.M. Rosenthal, the then metropolitan editor of the New York Times, happened to meet Police Commissioner Michael J. Murphy for lunch. Winston Mosley had just been arrested, and had confessed to the murders of both Kitty Genovese and the two other young women. Michael Murphy mentioned in passing, quote, You know that story out in Queen's? That's one for the books. 38 witnesses. 38 witnesses. That was the story that came from the police. And it is what made the story stick. Mr Rosenthal knew immediately he had just been handed a major scoop. And when he returned to the office, he assigned it to a reporter, Martin Gansberg, that afternoon. A few days later, Martin Gansberg, who died in 1995, filed his story, and it soon appeared on the front page with the now-famous headline 37 who saw murder didn't call the police. The story ran on the bottom of the front page of the New York Times on March 28, 1964. Note the headline referred to 37 witnesses, but the article itself referred to 38 witnesses, and it's the latter that gained momentum. The opening paragraph of the article said, For more than half an hour, 38 respectable, law-abiding citizens in Queens watched a killer stalk and stab a woman in three separate attacks in Kew Gardens. Twice the sound of their voices and the sudden glow of their bedroom lights interrupted him and frightened him off. Each time he returned, sought her out and stabbed her again. The following day, the New York Times ran a second story that gave a reaction to the incident, with experts from various fields offering explanations of what they thought had happened. From then on, the story grew legs, what we would now term going viral. Kew Gardens was descended upon by reporters and researchers looking for detail and corroboration of this incredible headline and article. To this day, no one knows precisely where the figure of 37 or 38 comes from, Other than that comment from Mr. Murphy to Mr. Rosenthal, despite numerous and careful studies carried out over the decades, this could never be confirmed. In fact, it's now believed that at most six or seven people may have been witness to the attack, because once Kitty moved inside into the back of the building, no neighbours could have seen the tragedy that ensued. They may have heard muffled screams, but for them to see the fatal attack would have been impossible from the apartments in the building or from across the street. It is known that one of the neighbours in the building did open his door when he heard the screams, but was too afraid to get involved, so climbed out across the roof to a neighbour and called the police. The story gained traction, and when Mosley was found guilty of Kitty's murder in June 1964, he put in a plea of insanity, but this was rejected. He was convicted by a jury of first-degree murder, and when a death sentence was handed down by the judge, applause broke out in the courtroom. The presiding judge called him a monster and said he himself wouldn't hesitate to pull the switch on him. Mosley, however, showed no emotion. He was never tried for the other two deaths. The initial death sentence was commuted to life imprisonment in 1967, following an appeal on mental health grounds. In 1968, Mosley escaped prison following a visit to hospital to be treated for a self-inflicted injury. Whilst out, he committed further burglaries and raped another woman. He surrendered to police shortly afterwards and was charged with escape and kidnapping, to which he pleaded guilty. Mosley was given two additional 15 year sentences to run concurrently with his life sentence. Throughout his time in prison, Mosley lodged 18 parole applications but was denied each time. He never showed remorse for what he had done, and eventually died in prison at the age of 81 in 2016. Having served 52 years at the time of his death, he was the longest serving inmate in New York State. Following the New York Times report in 1964, the interest in Kitty Genovese was significant. There was incredulity surrounding the supposed lack of response by the neighbours, How could people let such a terrible crime take place and not take any action? At a time when the world seemed to be unravelling, John F. Kennedy having just been assassinated four months earlier, and crime rates were starting to rise, Kitty Genovese's murder became the poster story for what was an ailing urban life. The action, or lack of action, lent itself to numerous theories about urban apathy, how city life was becoming less caring and where people could not walk the streets safely. It also piqued the interest of social psychologists to look deeper into these accusations. Were they true? Was society becoming more apathetic and less caring? Did people really stand back and do nothing at times of trouble? These questions have led to some of the largest social psychology research in recent years, the results of which became variously known as bystander apathy, the bystander effect, or the Genovese syndrome. Most recognised research was in 1968, when John M. Darley and Bib Latane performed three experiments to test bystander apathy. Their results came to be the accepted understanding for emergency situations when there are many bystanders. The findings suggest that in the case of an emergency, when people believe that there are other people around, they are less likely or slower to help a victim, because they believe someone else will take responsibility. This became known as a diffusion of responsibility. They may assume that other bystanders are more qualified to help, such as doctors or police officers, and that their intervention would be unneeded. Or they may also be afraid of offering unwanted assistance. Or they're afraid that they may face legal consequences if they offer assistance that may be wrong or cause further harm. Or indeed they may be afraid of being harmed themselves. For these reasons, some countries around the world now have laws known as Good Samaritan Laws that limit liability for those attempting to provide medical and non-medical services in an emergency. This reduces the likelihood that someone may not step in in fear of being sued for doing the wrong thing. This research by Latine and Dali, and the results from it, is now documented in all major psychology textbooks used by students across the world to understand this area of psychology and human behaviour. Sadly, though, the majority of the books cite the original case as reported in the New York Times, the 38 witnesses who saw everything and did nothing. So how does research explain what happened in March 1964, and could it have helped Kitty? The short answer to that is, well, it couldn't really. Kitty was not killed because of inaction by her neighbours. Kitty was killed by Winston Mosley a man whose sole intention that night was to kill a woman, any woman. What has come to the forefront since the case in 1964 was that the original story by the New York Times was seriously flawed in three very specific and significant places. One, the number of witnesses. Two, whether any of the witnesses actually witnessed the murder as it happened. And three, that there were two attacks, not three attacks, as stated in the original article. The New York Times, in its reporting of the events that night, made sure the angle it wanted to portray was taken up, that of the apathetic witnesses. They did this by prominently displaying the story on its front page with that incorrect headline. The key line came from one of the witnesses, none of whom were named, who said, I don't want to get involved. There is no evidence to suggest that there are anywhere near 38 witnesses. No one knows where this figure came from exactly other than, of course, it being mentioned at the lunch with Mr Rosenthal. The documents of the time show that the police carried out door-to-door investigations and spoke with a number of people, many in the same households. It may be that these had been pulled together to come up with a total number. It is true that some people did hear a disturbance, but thought that somebody else was dealing with it or it was a drunken brawl. After the initial attack on Austin Street, across from the Mowbray, When a neighbour called out, Mosley ran off to his parked car. By the time most witnesses heard the screams and made it to their windows and then looked out, they wouldn't have seen anything as Kitty staggered inside the building. A sworn statement was taken by one of the neighbours saying that they had called the police at the time and that no action was taken on that initial call. Indeed, it wasn't logged. The police deny the call took place because of that. Once the final calls were placed to the police after the second attack, they arrived quickly, but Mosley by then had fled, and sadly Kitty couldn't be saved. After Mosley's death in March 2016, the New York Times called their second story flawed, stating, Whilst there was no question that the attack occurred, and that some neighbours ignored cries for help, The portrayal of 38 witnesses as fully aware and unresponsive was erroneous. The article grossly exaggerated the number of witnesses and what they had perceived. None saw the attack in its entirety. Only a few had glimpsed parts of it or recognised the cries for help. Many thought they'd heard lovers or drunks quarrelling. There were two attacks, not three, and afterwards two people did call the police. A 70-year-old woman ventured out and cradled the dying victim in her arms until they arrived. Miss Genovese died on the way to the hospital. In the years to come, hundreds of books and articles as well as countless plays, movie scripts and songs were inspired by the story of the 38 witnesses who watched their neighbour die. Many of the 38 were consumed by guilt after the crime. Others simply got fed up with the negative attention and many of them moved away from Kew Gardens. Kitty's younger brother, William, Bill, to this day seeks explanation and understanding about the events. He tried to contact Mosley whilst he was in prison, but he refused to speak with him. In 2015, Bill released a documentary that discusses the case and recreates the events of the night. It's called The Witness, and it received critical acclaim and was awarded one of the best documentaries of 2016. So how did this case change America? Well, whilst the details of the events that night may have faded, the idea that 38 people saw the attack and did nothing lives on. The idea of urban apathy had a long-lasting effect on the nature of city living across the US. People became much more scared to venture out or were suspicious of people they met in the street. The psychological research still references the incorrect information, the cold, unfeeling name of the Genovese syndrome, is in itself not a true reflection of what happened. The bystander effect does exist. Now it's being used to good effect, with practical applications in cases of harassment, bullying and cybercrime, getting people to come forward and look out for others. But one of the most important changes that has resulted is the early adoption of the 911 call system for emergencies. This had been looked at in years before the Kitty Genovese murder, but the outcry and public fear generated by the reporting of the case brought the 911 call system into practice much quicker. On February 16, 1968, Senator Rankin Fite completed the first 911 call made in the United States, in Haleyville, Alabama. Whilst doing my research for this episode, one thing that has struck me in almost everything I've read is an important omission. At the centre of this is not that 38 people were apathetic, or that a newspaper editor saw a creative angle for a story, or that people who live in cities are less caring. But on that night, the life of a young woman was brutally cut short. Kitty Genovese, a good person, from a loving family, who was making her own way in life, living it out quietly with her partner Marianne, did not deserve to die that night. She was an unfortunate victim of a wholly unnecessary crime. She was, very sadly, in the wrong place at the wrong time. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. For more details on this case, visit the links I've provided in the show notes at www.injustoneday.com forward slash kitty. I've also included a link to a copy of the original News York Times article on the show notes page. If there are any stories you'd like me to include on the show, then get in touch via Facebook, Twitter or email. Hello at injustoneday.com And if you're enjoying the show please be sure to subscribe, rate and review it on iTunes or for Android wherever you pick up your podcast episodes. But until next time, have a great day.